We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on local now, channel 525. WTBN, Pinellas Park. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. As we move into the last section of Romans chapter 8, we move with reverence, with humility, because we find ourselves in spiritual territory that is beyond our comprehension. I don't understand the things totally that I'm going to be teaching you these next few weeks and have begun to teach last Sunday. And you know, there's a natural tendency for Christians to want to retreat from areas they don't understand. This is, this is the beauty of exposition. It causes us to dig in in places and territories that we might not want to dig in because it's, it's either taxing on the mind or we don't understand it or it seems beyond us. And so we want to fall back with something we feel real comfortable with. Hello and welcome to Verse by Verse with Pastor Steve Kreloff, the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Pastor Steve teaches expositorily, which means he teaches the whole Bible, verse by verse. We begin this series about sovereignty and security by joining Pastor Steve as he moves through my favorite chapter in the Bible, Romans 8. I love this chapter because of the great promises we find in it, but it's especially precious in light of what Paul said in chapter 7 about his struggles with sin. After lamenting his inability to conquer his flesh on his own, He gives God the credit for the victories he's had and moves into this crescendo of praise we call Romans chapter 8. Now here's Pastor Steve with today's lesson. I'd like you to turn, please, in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, what some have called the hymn of security, Romans chapter 8. And we're looking at the last passage, last section of this magnificent chapter out of the book of Romans, and it goes like this, starting at verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who's against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us 
from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. A number of years ago, a man by the name of J.B. Phillips wrote a book entitled, Your God is Too Small. Your God is Too Small. He wrote this book, he says, because he came to realize that many people have misconceptions of God. Some see him as a, as, as a brutal person. Some see him as a cosmic killjoy. Some see him as someone just waiting for us to get in trouble to clamp down on us. You know, that's not just unbelievers who have misconceptions of God. May I suggest that there are many believers, truly born-again people, Christians, who have a misconception of God when it comes to the area of the security of their salvation? I know there are many people like that. I meet them all the time. Their God is too small to save them and keep them. Their God is too small to keep them believing. Their God is too small to overcome their sin. He's too small to protect them from Satan. He's too small to protect them from any other thing that could attack them and get them out of their security. He's just too small to keep them safe for all of eternity. Now, as we've been studying the issue of eternal security the last few weeks, we've seen a number of proofs for why we're secure in Christ. And it all begins in verse 1 of chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is what sets Paul in motion. That is one statement that takes the rest of the chapter to defend and prove and give the valid reasons. And Paul goes through this chapter and he says, here's the reason why you're secure, why you'll never be condemned. He's not talking in verse 1 about no condemnation now. The thought here is that there will never be any condemnation for those who have truly trusted Christ as Savior. And so the whole chapter could have written over it as its theme, security. Security. Eternal security. But when all is said and done, and for the last few weeks, and I guess months now, we have been slowly going through chapter 8, because I think this is a pivotal part of the whole book and the whole Christian life. We've been going through it, and we've been showing reasons and proofs and valid reasons and more proofs why we're secure in Christ. But you know, when all is said and done, it really boils down to how big is your God? Or I should put it this way, how big is your conception of God? Is he great enough to keep you and to bring you to glory? That's really the bottom line. Is God great enough to keep you? If your view of God is that he's not great enough, then you're going to struggle with security. If you understand that God is all-powerful and he's great and he's majestic, the young children sang this morning, Lord, oh Lord, how majestic is your name. God's name is not only majestic, his whole character is majestic. Is he great enough to keep you and bring you to glory? All the other arguments that we've seen in Romans chapter 8, I would say, though they're certainly inspired by God, they're, they're coming from a human perspective, a human level. Even though they're divine in the sense that God has given it to us, they're from a very human level that we might grasp. For instance, do we understand that we are uh, what our salvation is all about? Do we understand that we're his sons? Do we understand that the Spirit of God dwells in us? These are, these are things that we can see and lay hold of, and they're at a human level. But Paul's last proof for our security is from a divine level. It is from the standpoint of God's sovereignty. And when we say sovereignty, we mean his, his being in control, totally in control. No accidents in the Christian life. Nothing that, that passes God by without him being absolutely in control. When we say his sovereignty, we mean that he sustains everything. God is so sovereign that his eternal purposes must come to pass. That's the thought of this last section. And if we are a part of, of that eternal purpose, then we are totally secure, right? 
If God's purposes, his decrees must come to pass, if nothing can thwart the eternal decrees and purposes of God, and if we're a part of that purpose, then nothing can remove us from being in Christ. We are secure. As we move into the last section of Romans chapter 8, we move with reverence and with humility because we find ourselves in spiritual territory that is beyond our comprehension. I don't understand the things totally that I'm going to be teaching you these next few weeks and have begun to teach last Sunday. And you know, there's a natural tendency for Christians to want to retreat from areas they don't understand. This is, this is the beauty of exposition. It causes us to dig in in places and territories that we might not want to dig in because it's, it's either taxing on the mind or we don't understand it or it seems beyond us. And so we want to fall back with something we feel real comfortable with. Well, I say let's forge ahead. The word of God was written for us. All scripture is inspired of God because it's all profitable for us. And this section is profitable for us. So while some may want to retreat because we can't grasp with our minds everything we read, we need to simply let God's word speak to us. We need to let the word of God dwell in us richly and fill us with a sense of awe and wonder for the God who revealed it. I may not understand all that I'm going to teach, but I'll tell you what, I rejoice in it. I I grasp it in the sense that I know what God is saying. I don't understand how it all works, but I know what God is saying, and in this I rejoice. And when we come out of Romans chapter 8, your view of God ought to be different. You, You ought to have such a holy view of a holy, righteous, sovereign God. You ought to be in awe of him. You ought to see him as Isaiah saw him high and lifted up. And that's what we hope to to have happen to us as we go through this section. Now, last week, we looked at the promise of security. And all of this, the theme is security from the standpoint of divine sovereignty. The promise of security, verse 28. And we know, not we feel, not we understand, but we know because the word of God tells us this, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. This is the promise of security. Great promise. Everything in life is being used by God for our own good, to make us like Christ right now. Everything, the heartaches, the trials, the difficulties, even sin in our lives. Sin is not good, but God is so great and so powerful that he even uses sin to help us to appreciate grace and forgiveness and to hate sin and to love holiness and to groan more for glory. All of these things are working together for our good. And since that is true in time and in history right now, if that is true right at this moment, then we know that nothing can work against us to keep us from being glorified. That's the whole point. In other words, if God is so sovereign as to use everything to make us like Christ right now, then we know that God's going to keep things moving right along until we're in glory. Nothing can prevent us from glory because everything for a believer, for those who love God, work for our glory. Nothing can overrule divine sovereignty in keeping us from heaven. Absolutely nothing. You see, people wonder if their sin can keep them from heaven. Paul says, no, even sin works together for good. How about Satan? No, God is going to use even Satan as he brings temptations and and the trials of life into your life. God is going to even use that. Well, what then can separate us from the love of God? That's Paul's point as he concludes it. Nothing. If you come through this passage and you say, well, then what can keep me from heaven? You, you've arrived in the sense of an understanding of divine sovereignty and security. That's Paul's point. Nothing can. 
Nothing can keep us ultimately being like Christ in glory since God causes everything to work for our good in being like Christ right now. Do you get the point? That's the great promise of security. But it's only for those who love God. It's not for everyone. For those who love God, which is a, a way of saying believers. Only believers love God. And why do we love God? Everyone else hates God, but why do we love God? Because verse 28 says, we are the called according to his purpose. We're called. God moved in our hearts, turned us around, and somehow, uh, miraculously, changed our hearts that we love him because we're called and that internal call came to us. We responded to the gospel. We now love him. But it says, and I want you to look at the last phrase of verse 28. Called according to his purpose. What is the purpose of God? If we're a part of this purpose, we rejoice, right? I mean, the great promise is given to us because we're the ones who love God and we're called according to his purpose. But what is his purpose? We've got to understand the purpose before we can really begin to see the picture unfold. So we move from the promise of security to the purpose of security. Why? Why is it that we're secure? You see, too many times we look at things from a subjective standpoint, from ourselves. How does it benefit us? How, uh, why, why is it for us? What? Listen, we need to see it from God's standpoint. The purpose of security, and it's found in verse 29. For whom he foreknew... He also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, immediately, we are confronted with two theological words that tend to intimidate us and to scare us. And that's the words foreknew and predestined. They, they're scary to some people. And we don't want you to be scared about this. And we want to spend some time looking at these words. I think too many people rush through this passage. I just have sensed in my heart that God wants, wants me to go very slowly through this passage and that as a church we need to settle down here and look at it. And it's, I, I usually take a passage that's larger and deal with it, five to seven verses, but this morning we want to we camp right here in this verse. We don't need to be intimidated by those words, but we do need to properly understand them if we're to grasp what the purpose of our security really is. These are words that I say we have to hurdle if we're to understand the very purposes of God in, in saving us and securing us. First of all, foreknew, foreknow. The Greek word, and by the way, I don't usually tell you what the Greek word is um, in terms of sounding it out, because most of you probably couldn't care less what the Greek word sounds like. But I only mention this word and other words because it'll stick in your mind, because there's an English word just like this. This is the Greek word prognosko, prognosko. And we get our English word prognosis from that. Prognosco, prognosis. What is a prognosis? A prognosis is a medical term meaning the, uh, the probable course which an illness will take. The doctor, the physician takes an educated guess on the future course of a disease. He makes a diagnosis and then he makes a prognosis. Just an educated guess on what will take place in the future concerning this illness. Prognosis. Now, this was the way it was used in classical Greek. In the classical Greek language, before the New Testament was written, it was simply used as a medical term. It was also used in other areas, but it meant to know ahead of time, to know beforehand. But when we come to the New Testament, which was written in uh, Koine Greek, which was, which was further than classical Greek, it's a different kind of Greek, this word took on a more theological meaning. It did not mean just to look ahead, Used in classical Greek that way, but not when it pertains to, to God and his foreknowledge. It went beyond just knowing something ahead of time before it happened. 
And this is very, very important for us to know and to understand because there are some people who when they come to Romans 8, 29 and come to this verse for new or for no, they interpret it to mean that since God knew beforehand that certain people would believe the gospel, he predestined these people to be conformed to the image of his son. Maybe you've been taught that, that God knew ahead of, him, ahead of time who would believe and he chose them on the basis of knowing that they would already believe. That is not what this verse is teaching. And that is not what this word means. First of all, let me, let me explain it. First of all, and you have to really be observant to catch this, this verse is not saying that God knew something about particular individuals. Would you look closely at the verse? For whom he foreknew. It does not say for what he foreknew. It does not say that he knew the action that some people would take. It does not say that God knew beforehand what certain of his creatures would do. It says whom he foreknew, not what he foreknew. He foreknew the people, not the action of the people. Now, it's obvious that God knows ahead of time everything that's going to happen, but I want you to see that. He knew them, not something about them. Do you see that? And that, is, that, is, that just takes some observation. For those whom he foreknew, not that which he foreknew. Secondly, uh, and you need, to, you need to keep that in mind. This verse is not saying God looked down and saw that these people would believe. It just says he looked down and saw these people, knew them. Secondly, the meaning of foreknow or foreknew in the New Testament doesn't mean just to know beforehand. It means to foreordain. When you see this word, think of foreordain. In other words, it's a predetermined, foreordained, foreseen, planned love relationship. That is the meaning of the word. But I don't want you to take, take it at face value. Uh, as much as you might like me, I don't, that doesn't build biblical conviction into your life. Even if you trust my biblical integrity, uh, you need to see it yourself. You need to see that that is not a, uh, something that I just came up with. Uh, it, it will build biblical convictions in your mind and in your heart if you see that this is the way this word is used in the New Testament. So let me show you and let me take you there. Uh, you ought to write this down. You ought to be taking notes on this. And you'll see how it's used. And we'll let the scriptures speak to our hearts. Acts chapter 2 is the first place that we want to look. Acts chapter 2 in verse 23, the setting is this. Peter is speaking to the Jewish people on the day of Pentecost, and he's explaining to them about Jesus of Nazareth, who was killed and who rose again, and he is giving them the, the great message of salvation, and they need to respond to it. And he says in verse 22, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, this Jesus, delivered up by the predetermined plan and what? For knowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Is Peter saying, simply saying that to these people that God only knew beforehand that Christ would be crucified? Is that what he's saying? No, absolutely not. That's why the verse says the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, they go together. There wouldn't be any point in saying that God just looked down and knew that, that godless men would crucify Christ. So what? That's, that's, not even, that's not even significant to where they're coming from. What Peter is saying is, look, this plan, well, this was in the predetermined plan of God and the foreknowledge of God, the foreordaining of God that Christ would die even though godless men put him on the cross. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility. 
Yes, men crucified him. But he's saying, men of Israel, it was all part of God's plan. And for ordination is used with the term predetermined plan. Christ's death was planned by God. It was foreordained that, that he would be delivered by the predetermined plan of God. And if, I just want to show you that further in, in Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and 28. For truly in this city they were gathered together, the apostles are saying, against thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou didst anoint before Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever thy hand and thy purpose, what? Predestined to occur. You see, the death of Christ was planned by God. And so when Peter, back in Acts chapter 2, says to these men that it was based on the foreknowledge of God, he certainly doesn't mean that God just knew ahead of time that it would happen. That's not even pertinent. Certainly God knew ahead of time that everything would happen. Why would you even say? It it would be superficial and superfluous. You wouldn't even need to say that. This word is also used in Romans chapter 11 concerning Israel and God's righteous dealings with Israel. Verse 1, Paul says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? Speaking of Israel, has God rejected them? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. There's that word, foreknew. Is Paul simply saying that God knew beforehand that the nation of Israel was going to fall away? No. And you'll see that when we get into Romans 9, 10, 11. No, Paul's whole, his whole argument is that God hasn't rejected the very people that he's chosen. That's the argument. The ones that he has ordained to be his people. In other words, it is ridiculous for anyone to think that God would set his affection and choose Israel and set his affection upon Israel, choose them, and then cast them away. That doesn't make any sense, and that's why Paul says it's ridiculous. See, the word foreknow is, is the same thing here. It doesn't mean God just knew ahead of time. No, he set his affection upon Israel. And Paul is saying, it doesn't make sense. He wouldn't, he wouldn't cast those away that he chose. First Peter uses this, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. Peter tells these suffering believers, knowing that you were not redeemed, in verse 18, with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he, that is Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Foreknown. Is it possible that Peter is merely saying that because God knows everything he knew before the foundation of the world that Christ would become the Lamb of God? No. Peter's point is that God foreordained, in fact, that's the way most translators translate that word, foreordained Christ to be the Lamb of God. He was chosen for that sacrificial work on the cross. And let me tell you, this is very important because if God merely knew, if the Father now merely knew ahead of time, only ahead of time, what Christ would do, then what this is saying is that Christ was working on his own. That it wasn't part of the divine decree working together. And if Christ is working on his own apart from the predetermined plan of God, then I want you to know that's heresy. That's heresy. That denies the trinity of God. It denies being one in essence. No, it can't possibly be that, that God simply knew ahead of time and wasn't involved in it. God the Father planned it. Understanding that Christ was foreordained before the beginning of time is pretty commonly accepted even though it's a little incomprehensible. But when we discover that you and I were also foreordained before the beginning of time, wow, that's just amazing. 
That's why Jude, in verse 24, was able to say that God is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy. He has it all planned, and nothing in the universe can thwart that plan. Thanks for joining us today. You've been listening to Verse by Verse with Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Go online to lakesidechapel.com to find out more, or call Lakeside at 727-441-1714. Today was the start of a new series of lessons from Romans chapter 8 about God's sovereignty and our security. If you'd like to listen again or browse for previous programs, you'll find them at our website, versebyverseradio.org. Just click the message archive link and search for the date or title you want. And there's a giving page if you'd like to help with the costs of airing these Bible classes. We depend on the gifts and prayers of our listeners to meet those expenses, so thank you. That's at versebyverseradio.org. This is Jerry Peterson. Jude said that God can keep us from stumbling. He can enable sinners like us to stand before His own glorious righteousness. So when we sin, rather than be discouraged, we can still have confidence that He is still working in us and will not give up on us. God promised, and He never breaks a promise. Pastor Steve will have more on the next Verse by Verse. I hope you can join us. You've been listening to Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. This program was pre-recorded. To learn more, including how to donate to this ministry, visit versebyverseradio.org. That's Verse by Verse. W262CP 